<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. It was a long time before serial killers, mass shooters, and more gruesome, gory crimes. 107 years ago, in a small quaint town in southwest Iowa, on a road that leads to a dead end, sits a two-story house with a white frame. The old house sits near some churches, close to a park, a middle school, and his neighbors to similar homes. But unlike those, this home has sat abandoned for decades. There's no power, no water, and the door is boarded up. But back in the 1900s, the town of Basilica, Iowa, was starting to come onto the map. Basilica, by definition, means pleasant view, and that's what it was becoming. A thriving town, with more businesses moving in, families setting up their homes, and that included the Moore family. But what was once a pretty place would hold a house of nightmares, and even to this day, has many unanswered questions about what happened in the murder house. WQAD Podcast Network. The crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and Murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. This content is not for the faint of heart. And now, here's your host, Toria Wilson. Now we need to make it a point, first and foremost, that there's not a whole lot of information on what happened that fateful June night back in 1912. Investigations were conducted, 10 years worth from what I read before it truly went cold, but the technology and tools we have nowadays when trying to find answers in these types of cases just didn't exist back then. And the information I'm basing this episode on is from two websites, Iowa Cold Cases and BasilicaIowa.com. Both seem to have the most information on this case, but other than that, is really only known by the Moors, the Stillinger girls, and the unknown killer. So let's go back to the beginning. June 9th, 1912. An early Sunday morning, Lena and Ina Stillinger left for church. The two had planned on spending the afternoon with their grandmother and having dinner before going to another church program for children. Before 8 that night, the Stillinger home received a call from Mr. Josiah Moore, asking if the girls would want to stay the night with his daughter, 10-year-old Catherine Moore. The Stillinger girls still went to that children's program that night, alongside Catherine, her older brother Herman, who was 11, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul. The Moore children's mother, Sarah, was one of the directors for this event, where the children performed speeches and recited Bible verses. Once the services and socializing ended at about 9.30 that night, the Moore family and the Stillinger girls walked three blocks to return to the Moore home. They entered the home between 9.45 and 10 that night. Josiah and Sarah Moore slept in their bed upstairs. Catherine, Herman, Boyd, and Paul rested in a room down the hallway. 
and Lena and Ina Stillinger stayed in a guest room on the first floor in the house. Around midnight, the killer or killers picked up Josiah's axe from the backyard in the home. They entered the home through an unlocked door, but keep in mind, that was not unusual. They grabbed an oil lamp sitting on a nearby table. So in one hand, lamp, the other, the axe. Or, quite possibly, one person held the lamp, the other held the axe. Who knows? The killer or killers ignored the guests in the downstairs room initially and headed upstairs. They passed the room with the children, beelining to the bedroom of Sarah and Josiah Moore. Police would later determine that this was an extremely brutal murder. The axe used to kill the couple and the children had been swung so high above the killer's head, it hit the ceiling above the bed. Josiah alone was hit with the axe at least 30 times. His face completely mauled, his eyes missing, or possibly completely disintegrated by the number of blows he sustained. Unfortunately, his wife also suffered from this fate, but I cannot find any information of who was hit first, if they were hit together, or what exactly happened. Again, this is 1912, not 2019. The Moore children also suffered from the same fate. They were all killed with 20 to 30 blows to the head. The Stillinger sisters were next, but from what I gather, Lena may have been woken up to the noises happening outside of their guest room and could have tried to fight off the attackers. According to the testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams, Lena was found laying as though, quote, she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over, but just a little. Apparently she had been struck in the head and squirmed down the bed, perhaps one third of the way, end quote. Lena also had a blood stain on her knee and an alleged defense wound on her arm. At about 5 a.m., the Moore's elderly next-door neighbor, Mary Pinkham, was getting ready to hang laundry. Two hours later, she reportedly still had not seen the Moors outside, or that the chores had been done. The house, Pinkham had said, was unusually still. Sometime between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary decided to go to the house and knock on the door. When there was no response, she tried to open the door, because again, this is 1912, and all the doors were usually unlocked at the home, because killers don't just enter. But when Mary tried to open it, it was locked from the inside, so Mary called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. When Ross arrived, he tried to look into a bedroom window. He knocked on the door. He shouted trying anything to wake the eight that were inside. But when none of this worked, he grabbed some keys, and when he found the one that would open his brother's family's home, he stepped inside. Neighbor Mary stayed on the porch. Ross did not go far. He only enters the parlor and opens the bedroom door attached to the room. When the door swings open, he sees two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the bed sheets. Yes, he stumbled upon the bodies of the Stillinger girls. So Ross runs out of the house 
and tells Mary to call the sheriff. By the time the police, the coroner, the minister, and even doctors came out to go through the crime scene, word of the bodies spread throughout the town, and a crowd began to gather around the Moore home. The discovery of the Moore family was by City Marshal Hank Horton. Officials had cautioned the townsfolk from going inside, but law enforcement soon lost control of the scene, and at least 100 people stormed the home. They gawked at the bodies before the Basilica National Guard came to the home to secure it. One of the townspeople even left that day with a fragment of Josiah's skull as a keepsake. Now this is something to note of what we know in this day and age about brutal murders such as this. All of the eight victims were covered with the bedsheets after they were killed. So while the act itself was brutal, with this killer striking each victim so many times and then covering them up, it can indicate that this person was extremely enraged, possibly directed at the Moors themselves. But then by covering the bodies can indicate remorse and that the person who was behind this crime didn't want them to be laid out in the open in such a manner. Not only were the bodies draped with the bedsheets, but the majority of the curtains were drawn, except for two. Those windows were covered with clothing that belonged to the Moors. The mirrors were also covered. All of the doors were also locked around the home. So was this just a way for the killer to make sure that no one would see the work that had been done? There was also some strange placement of items around the home. The coroner, Dr. Linquist, reported a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom, lying near the bloody axe. The bacon weighed nearly two pounds and was wrapped in what he thought was a dish towel. A second slab of bacon, about the same size, was also found in the icebox. A bowl of water was found in the home, with blood swirling in it, which may indicate that the killer washed up before running out. Uneaten food was also found in the kitchen. I kind of wonder what they ate. Now, had this case happened in the last 10 years, it's my opinion that this could have been solved with DNA testing, advanced fingerprinting, and other technology that could assist police. There's no doubt in my mind that a suspect could have been identified in this whole ordeal. And while there has never been a conviction in this murder, despite the decades of this case being cold, it goes without saying that there wasn't a shortage of suspects. Some newspapers back then had at least four possibilities, but many of the leads were unfortunately exhausted. And in the years following, historians and others who have studied this case, according to the websites dedicated to it, have their suspicions. The first suspect was Frank F. Jones a prominent resident and Iowa State Senator. The head of the Moore household, Josiah Moore, worked for Jones at his store until he opened his own company back in 1908. Townsfolk had stated back then that Jones was extremely upset over this, especially since Moore took a deal with the John Deere franchise with him. What also fanned the flames, according to rumor, was that Moore had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law. The second possible suspect, who was actually arrested for this case, was William Mansfield. According to one investigator, James Newton Wilkerson, Mansfield was hired by Frank Jones to kill Josiah Moore and his family. 
but Mansfield had a reputation already as a serial killer. So even if he was suspected in the axe murder, it wouldn't be his first. Mansfield was also known as George Worley and Jack Turnbaugh, and was believed to be responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in July of 1914, two years after the Basilica murders. He was also accused of the axe murder in Kansas four days before the murder of the Moors and the murders of two others in Aurora, Colorado. Investigators say all of the deaths had similar circumstances. An axe was used to kill the victims, the mirror in the homes were covered, and a basin of water and blood was found. The murderer in all of these cases also wore gloves so that no fingerprints were left at the scene. But according to Detective Wilkerson, Mansfield knew that could potentially catch him since his fingerprints were on file at the federal military prison. In 1916, four years after the Axe murders in Basilica, Mansfield was arrested, but payroll records provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the murders. So he was released on the lack of evidence and even filed a lawsuit against Detective Mansfield at the cost of $2,225, which is the equivalent to $52,411 in today's money, inflation and all of that. Another crime suspect was the Reverend George Kelly, a traveling preacher. On the night of the murders, Reverend Kelly was invited to attend that children's service at the church. Hours after that service, and not even a half hour after the discovery of the bodies, Reverend Kelly left the small town of Basilica on a train heading west. He reportedly told passengers aboard this train that there were eight dead souls back in Basilica, butchered in their beds while they slept. But that information hadn't really been spread around town just yet. The Reverend later returned to Basilica two weeks later, posing as a detective and joined a tour of the murder house with a group of investigators. A few weeks after that, he became a suspect after alerting others of his possible crimes in a series of rambling letters. He claimed in those letters that God told him to kill the family, so quote, suffer the children to come unto me. There were other factors that police believed made him the perfect candidate. Reverend Kelly was left-handed, which the police determined from the blood splatter that the killer must be. He also had a history with the Moore family, watching them while at church and when the family was out and around town. And sometime after the murders, Kelly had dropped off bloody clothing to a dry cleaner's. In 1917, the Reverend was arrested and confessed to the crime, but he immediately recanted his statement. He did go through a first trial, which ended in a hung jury, and he was finally acquitted by a second jury trial and was released. Strangers, including hobos and the likes, were also pinned as suspects in this case. Because if you live in a small rural community such as this, you don't know these people like you do your neighbor. So why wouldn't someone the town didn't know kill an innocent family? And this included Andy Sawyer. On the morning of the discovery of the bodies, Sawyer had approached a railroad crew in Crested, Iowa, which is about 45 minutes away from Basilica. He was clean-shaven and in a suit and asked for a job, which he was given on the spot. 
Now, Sawyer's fascination with the murders is what freaked out the crew on this rail line. See, that night after the murders, Sawyer grabbed a newspaper that carried the murders on the front page. He showed, quote, much interest in this case. It was also the way he acted that also freaked out his fellow workers. He slept with his regular clothes on and with an axe. He was anxious to be alone and often talked about the murders and whether or not a killer had been arrested. He also talked about being in Basilica that Sunday and actually told people he was afraid he may be named as a suspect, which is why he up and left and headed to Creston. Well, that comment is what had his foreman turn him into the police on June 18th. And it didn't help none that before the sheriff arrived to arrest Sawyer, the foreman reportedly had walked up behind Sawyer, who was rubbing his head with both hands when he suddenly jumped and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off all while making striking motions with his axe and hitting piles in front of him. But Sawyer was also dismissed as a suspect when it was discovered he had actually been in Osceola, Iowa that night. So was the axe murders the work of a serial killer? That has also been a theory thrown around over the decades. Henry Moore, who has no relation to the Moore family, was accused of this heinous crime. But nine months before, Henry was accused in the brutal axe murders of H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, as well as Mrs. A.J. Burnham and her two children in Colorado Springs, Colorado. A month later, in October of 1911, a family was killed in Monmouth, Illinois. And a week after that, a family of five was murdered as they slept in their home in Ellsworth, Kansas. And just a week before the Basilica axe murders, Henry Moore was accused of killing a man and his wife in Payola, Kansas. After this crime spree and a month after the deaths, Henry Moore was accused and later convicted in the axe murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Missouri. He served 36 years of a life prison for those two deaths only and was never charged with the other deaths, just accused. He would later be paroled by the governor of Missouri and was released June 30th, 1956, at the age of 82. It's unknown where he died or where he was living at the time. So, a brief recap. Josiah and Sarah Moore, along with their four children, as well as their two friends, Lena and Ina, were brutally axed to death as they slept in the Moore's home. Their bodies would be discovered June 10th, 1912. Several men were accused, Even one was tried for the crime, but no one has ever been convicted in this crime. And now, the case is cold. The home has been owned several times over the years. Many people who have visited claim to experience some paranormal activity. It's been reported people hear footsteps, see shadowy figures, feel strange gusts of cold wind. In some rare cases, others have reported being attacked by a force that left marks on their skin, but not on their clothes. And starting now, people can sign up to tour the home in the day or the night. On the Basilica Homes webpage, under the tab of Tours and Overnight Visits, it reads, Dare to take the challenge, or are you too scared? <laughs>